Well, praise the Lord, church. I am <clears throat> honored to kind of stand before you again. And I know a lot of times we, you'll hear preachers stand up and say those things. You know, I'm honored to be able to stand before you and talk and grateful that, you know, the pastor uh, entrusts that in, into me. And while it may seem like formality sometimes, the truth is, is, and I'll only speak for myself. I won't speak for anyone else. I know for myself that any time I know that I'm going to be standing behind this pulpit, there is always the butterflies. It's not the butterflies because I'm nervous that I can't articulate my thoughts. I'm not nervous because you and the congregation will not hear what I'm saying or be judgmental of it. That's, that's not what the butterflies are. The butterflies, if you will, the nerves, is that I don't ever, ever, ever want to view standing behind the pulpit as an opportunity for me to express my personal you know, philosophies and, and my soapboxes and, and my, you know, grudges, if you will. Like, I, I always want to remember that standing behind this pulpit is a representation of Christ. Not that I'm Christ, but that I am giving the word. But with that being said, I think it's important that we all remember any time in our daily lives when we're speaking to others, we should have that same thought. Because we are ambassadors for Christ. And this pulpit, there's nothing about this wood that's special. Right? No matter where we are, we are the voice piece of God if we will allow him to use us. Tonight, I'm going to kind of wrap up our series that we've been discussing on evangelism. So Ephesians chapter 4. Um, you're welcome to stand with me if you want. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 4 to verse 11 through 13. A couple verses, it'll sound familiar because it's the same verses I've opened each Wednesday this month. And I'll explain why here in just a moment. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hide your word in our heart, O God, that we would let that word fall on good ground, that in due season it would bring forth fruit, Lord, that we would be ambassadors for you, that we would be constant evangelists in everywhere that we go, that we would represent you well, we give you all glory and all the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So very briefly, the first Wednesday of this month, we asked the simple question, and that was simply, what is evangelism? I'm not going to re-preach that message, but just in a nutshell, evangelism, the word, simply means the bearer or bringer of good news. Within biblical context, it simply means one who is bringing or sharing or representing the good news of the gospel. And sometimes we think of the gospel as just being the death, burial, resurrection, and it is absolutely that, but Jesus is the word. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all part of the word that we need to live our day-to-day -day lives. So when we evangelize, we of course talk about salvation, but we also talk about who Jesus is and what he wants for our lives. We discussed at the end of that message the parable of the sower and the seed. 
One thing that we, we discussed a lot was talking about the fact that there are times where we have someone like Braden Anderson, Dr. Braden Anderson, come in and preach a powerful message and go out and knock doors and, and get people to come into the church, and it's fantastic and it's needed. But we also discussed that before there can be a harvest, we have to have those who are willing to plant the seed and tend to the garden. Tending to the garden is not a one-time, fly-by-night situation, but that it's built on relationship and consistency within the Word of God. So we have to be a gardener. Then, two weeks ago, we discussed why evangelism. So what is evangelism? Then we discussed why evangelism. First John chapter 2, 4-6 through six says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him, ought himself also to walk even as he walked. So, to say that we love God means that we keep his commandments. That's what scripture tells us. If we say we love God, but we willingly deny and refuse to follow the commandments, then our actions speak louder than our words. But Matthew 22, 36 through 40 kind of takes that a step further. And what does it mean then to keep his commandments? Verse 36, Matthew 22 says, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus experienced more hurt than any other person ever to walk this earth. But Jesus is also the only one who knew just how bad hell will be for the sinner. Jesus took all of the lies, the disrespect, the shame, the betrayal. He took it all willingly because he knew it was worth every drop of blood from his brow if it meant his bride could be redeemed. Evangelism isn't optional for the believer. Evangelism isn't something extra only the super spiritual do. Evangelism is continuing the work that Christ began at Calvary. And if you're still unsure about the importance of evangelism, hear this. The King of glory loved man so much that he would endure the death of the cross and bear the weight of all man's sin. He would become sin who knew no sin. So what do you think his response will be if we stand before his throne and say, sorry, God, I didn't have time to ever evangelize. I had to make some money and, you know, get a bigger house for the family and, and do all of those other things. So, you know, I didn't quite have time to evangelize, but it's all good, right? Imagine if you can for a moment standing before someone who literally sacrificed everything who willingly hung on a cross, though he didn't deserve it, who willingly took the betrayal and the beating of the world upon himself, though he didn't deserve it. And at just the uttering of a word, he could have taken himself down from the cross and put it not all of the work of the enemy. But his love was so great 
that it caused him to stay on the cross for you and for me. I say this not in any way to make you feel guilty, to, to play on your emotions, but I do think it is important that sometimes we look at words like evangelism, and there's others, but tonight we're talking about that. So we look at words like evangelism and we, we whittle that down to an activity. We whittle that down to some small thing we may do once a month or on a Saturday or something along those lines. And we forget that evangelism is continuing the work of God. Evangelism is important because it is how you show God that you love him. Right? Jesus says that if we love him, we had also have to love others as he loved us. Well, we just explained that his love for us put him in a position to endure all of those things, all of those hardships to us. Therefore, the love that we have to be willing to show others has to go to the same length. I'm not saying you have to be on a cross, but I am saying that you have to be willing to sacrifice some things if you truly believe in the work of Calvary. Tonight, I want to conclude our discussion on evangelism, and we're going to have a fairly short message because I want to take just a little bit of time to pray over a few specific things. But tonight, we're going to wrap up by discussing verse 13 of our opening text. In Ephesians chapter 4, we discussed a lot about that the, 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 the five-fold ministry was given as a gift unto the church. We talked a little bit about why. But now I want to kind of wrap it up in looking at verse 13 of Ephesians 4. Listen to what it says. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, if you want to put a title on this, it's just simply the fullness of the stature of Christ. What does this mean? What does this word stature mean? What does it mean to be in the stature of the fullness of Christ? It simply is modifying, if you will, the word that was mentioned right before where it talks about being a perfect Man, the word perfect there cannot mean one who makes no mistakes and has no sin. Because you and I on our own cannot be perfect in the sense of being blameless. Because we were born in sin and shapen in iniquity. As long as we walk in the flesh, you cannot be perfect in the same manner that God is. Meaning that you cannot look at yourself as being on par with God. Because he alone is without blemish. He alone is without sin or flaw or faults. But what this word perfect simply means is to complete the work of becoming more and more like Christ. We talk about discipleship. If I could boil that down to one sentence, it would simply be this. The eternal journey to becoming the perfect reflection of a perfect God. On this earth, we walk, we take step by step, daily we press toward the mark, until finally we reach 1 John 3 and 2. We don't know what it is that we shall be yet, but when we see him, we'll know, because we will be like him. We will be like him when we see him. We haven't seen him yet. 
that means we have work to do. I find it interesting that in this passage of talking about apostles and teachers and all of these things and talking about measuring in the full stature of Christ, what does that mean? Because this would not amount to much if this verse or this this chapter, if you will, this message just simply said, hey, God gave the church gifts, teachers, prophets, evangelists, so that you can be in the fullness of the stature of Christ, that you could become a perfect man, and left it there. Well, what, is that, like, what does that mean? What do you, what, you're telling me that I need to be those things, but you're not dem- demonstrating for me how to do that. How do I fulfill what you're telling me to do? Well, fortunately, Paul doesn't leave us hanging. As we read through the rest of this chapter, I'm going to read just a couple verses here, and I'm not going to read them all. I'll start in verse 14. So listen to this in the context of what it is that we're trying to do, that we are in the church working to be more like Christ so that we can be Christ in the world. In verse 14, it says that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they, lay, they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. Now, in a moment, we're going to start in verse 21, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time, however short it is. But before we get to verse 21, we have to understand verses 14 and 15. We live in an age of unparalleled access to information. It, in, in some ways, it is incredible, especially for someone like me who is a huge nerd and always wants to learn something else. My wife sometimes complains that I'm, I'm you know, like an, a kid with ADD that never got better because I, I, like, I want to be this interested in this one thing and I'll talk all about it, read all about it, and then a couple days later, now I am completely off somewhere else talking about comic books or music or history or whatever it is. I don't know why. I just, I need to learn. I I like it. I find it interesting. But there is a flip side to that because in this age of so much information, we have to remember that information does not mean truth. There is lots and lots and lots of information presented by people who say they are credible sources, but they say things that do not line up with the Word of God. And if we're not careful, we will look at the titles of men and accept what they're saying solely for their title and accept that as authority, despite the fact that what they are teaching flies in direct opposition to the Word of God. When we hear verses like, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not, it's not a reference to the piece of paper you're reading right now. It is the understanding that all of reality begins and ends on the truth of Christ. That in the beginning, God spoke the world into existence. But here's what's really cool to me. In the beginning is a phrase that is unique because in the beginning is not a phrase that is in reference to God because God has no beginning and he has no ending. But this is the beauty of his message to us that in the beginning, what the beginning? The beginning of God's work in us. Think about that. 
Now, sometimes we can be a little narcissistic already, but, but think about the fact that the God of the universe, the God who spoke everything into existence, who created all things, with all of its creation, he chose to say in the beginning and then talk about you and me. What that demonstrates to me is that from the moment time was created, God saw me where I am now. He also saw me where I was when I was still lost in my sin. That's why Romans tells us that while we were still yet enemies with God, that he loved us. That's a hard concept for me to understand sometimes. Because I look at, at some of the things that goes on in this world, and I'm like, God, how can you tolerate this? How can you tolerate the, the perversion that's going on. I saw this video recently, and I seriously considered playing it here, but it was just, it was too blasphemous. I couldn't even show it as an example. It, 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 it turned my stomach. And that, that in this day and age, we hear people saying, well, if you really love God, then you have to love everyone regardless of their lifestyle. And you better not say that their lifestyle is wrong because that's not love. But this is what I'm talking about when I say that there is a ton of information out there but it's not all true. Because God's perfection, God's love demands that we be like him. And that any deviation is sin. You and I don't get to redefine what is acceptable and not acceptable. But in all of the wickedness in this world, in all of the horrendous things that man has done through the years, somehow, God's grace and mercy has been woven through the very fabric of time to continue time after time after time, putting people in our lives to help guide us back onto course when we begin to stray. God orchestrates moments in time where he says, I know you are not doing what I told you to do, so please hear me. And he continues to knock at the door. I will tell you the scariest place you can ever be in this life is when you no longer hear the knock at the door. Sometimes we, we, we look at conviction and we, we, we feel bad and we say, oh man, I'm such a horrible person because I feel God convicting me. And I want to tell you, no, no, the mere fact that you feel God convicting means you still hear the knock which means there's still time to open the door. But there will be a time where you won't hear the knock anymore. I recently heard a, a podcast and was talking about marriage and relationships and uh, you know how that we say things and we can't get them back after we say them. And there was a phrase that was said by this, this gentleman, and, and I, I have to tell you, it, 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 it made me stop and really kind of think about how I interact with my kids and, and with my wife. And he was explaining the story. He said that, you know, every funeral that he has ever gone to, he has never, ever once heard someone say, oh, if I could have just had one more fight, one more time to tell them how he was wrong and I knew I was right the whole time. Never has he, and this is his story, never has he heard this standing at the coffin of the recently deceased. 
But what he has heard time and again in different ways and in different contexts, he has heard, if I just had one more chance to say, I'm sorry. One more chance to say, I'm sorry, and I wish I would have said it sooner. It makes me think about how I, how I treat others, how I treat my wife and my kids, and how that sometimes we say things in the moment and the passion because we're so angry, but we don't realize you may not have the opportunity to say, I'm sorry. What does this have to do with evangelism? Looking down at verse 21. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversations, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and that ye put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. I I like that those two words are there together. But in reality, the word true isn't even necessary because holiness is who God is. The Bible says, be ye holy for God is holy. And therefore, there is no such thing as true holiness. There is only holiness or not holy. That's it. But the writer, for the sake of trying to reach the church here that he is writing this letter to, for he is trying to reach out to them and help them to understand that in your effort to continue to grow in your current environment, you have to recognize that your human arguments and your squabbles and your complaints about who is more important, you need to live in the truth of Christ and in true holiness emphasizing that their idea of holiness, if it's not solely measured against the teachings of Christ, is no holiness at all. Wherefore, putting away, lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Pause. I I love the way this is, is formatted because... If he just said, let him that stole still no more, that that would make sense. I mean, right? We're talking about holiness and we're talking about changing and leaving the old character behind. But notice here what the writer does. He says, let him who stole still no more. And he says, let him instead, you know, do honest work. But he doesn't say, let him do honest work just solely that he could be rich and be a good upstanding person to earn his money. No, no, no. He says, "Tell you need to stop stealing and do work honestly, but you need to work so that you can help others. God gives us blessings, and God puts us in positions, and God rewards, if you will, our faithfulness to him. And, and yes, God wants to give us gifts. I don't want it to be that that you hear me saying God wants you to be poor or or sad. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is sometimes we have to refocus our priorities on why we're doing what we're doing. 
I work because I have a family. The scripture is very clear that as the man of the house, it is my responsibility to provide for my family. But it is also true that I have the same responsibility to ensure that my family is raised in righteousness and in Christ. It cannot be one or the other. You cannot say, well, Christ says I have to work to provide for my family. Therefore, I am going to intentionally take every extra job I can, even if it means I never go to church ever again. No, no. You're missing the heart of what it is that Christ is trying to show you. You need to provide for your family because Christ provided for the church. But Christ's provision for the church wasn't just food on the table, but it was a reconnection with God himself. And so it is that we have to recognize the role that we do no matter where it is, where we work, whether it is in our recreation, whether it is in, in education, whatever the circumstance is, the full purpose should always be bringing glory to God and bringing others to God. So he says here, let him that stole still no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the things which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister, this is, this is a big one, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Sometimes we need to correct others. Sometimes there are moments when someone does something that is clearly wrong. And even within the context of leadership, if, and Pastor Paul, I'm just going to use you because you're sitting right here and you do the same, so I figure it's fair exchange. If Pastor Powell were to be confronted or brought the knowledge that someone, let's, Let's say me. We're brought to the knowledge that I have been doing something wrong, whatever. It is. I've been stealing, okay? I've been stealing. I wouldn't do that, but for the story, I've been stealing. As a pastor, he has a responsibility to help me get back onto the road with God, right? And that's just not the role of a pastor. Scripture tells us that if a brother falls, that we should work to restore that brother. But, listen, restoring them, correcting them, is not biblical if it excludes grace from the equation. Because Pastor Powell is not perfect. He still needs God's grace. I'm not perfect. Far from it. I need God's grace. So how could I exhibit godly correction if I condemn someone, remove grace from the equation, and only leave them feeling horrible with no, no route forward. You see, it's talking about the full stature of Christ. That's what, that's what we're discussing. We're discussing what it means to become perfect in Christ, to, to measure up to Christ's character. And the character of Christ was the same person who stood, nailed to the cross, and said, lay it not to their charge. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Was that God excusing their sin? No. Was that God saying that, oh, they can do whatever they want because I've died and it's all? No, of course not. We see scripture all throughout that tells about the wickedness of man and the hypocrisy and all of those things. But we also see time after time God providing the example that, hey, you're wrong. And here is the grace to help you become right. We have to make sure that all we do is bathed in the grace and mercy of God because as we do unto others, it's the same measure that will be used for us. And I know that I need grace every day. So I need to work and try to make sure I'm extending grace toward others. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Now, grieve not the Holy Spirit. That's a pretty strong phrase. And he then says what it is that will grieve the Holy Spirit. It says, whereby you are sealed unto the day, let all Bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, let all of that be put away from you with all malice and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And hath forgiven me. Words like tenderhearted. Words like be ye kind. Unfortunately in our world have taken on very different connotations and definitions. Being kind often is referred in the world standards as saying nothing against what someone else is doing. Don't you judge somebody. Don't you dare tell them what they're doing is wrong because that is not kind. But the truth is, is that biblical kindness, biblical tenderheartedness is almost this weird dichotomy if we view it from our perspective. Because it is both on one hand the willingness to confront someone with the reality of their sin. It is on one hand the, the understanding that you have the responsibility as it is able to help people recognize their sin. But at the same time, when you're doing that, you need to be doing it in love. That you need to be doing it in kindness. And this is where we have problems. Because sometimes we think kindness and confrontation are directly joined at the hip. You can't be kind and be confrontational. But that's not true because if you're in a burning house and I see you in a burning house and I say something very nice to you, hey, you might want to get out of the house. And they say to me, oh, don't tell me what to do. And I say, okay, and walk away. Well, that's actually not very kind of me. Because I am willingly and knowingly saying, yep, all right, you go right on ahead and burn. But this is what happens on an eternal sense. 
There are times we have those connections with those close to us. Times where we know that this person is making the... Look, in this very church, I guarantee you, we all know things about someone else, friends within the church, other people within this church or another, that we know, man, they are not doing what they should on this particular area. Kindness is helping them to restore that. It does not mean talking about them behind their back to other people. It does not mean gossiping. It does not mean casting aspersions against them for their mistakes. But what it also does not mean is just ignoring it willingly while you watch them walk away from the narrow way toward their own destruction. And sometimes being kind may simply mean praying for them. And I don't mean praying for them one time right as you're about to eat your meal. I mean praying for them consistently. The Bible says that the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. We want our prayers to matter, right? We want God to give us things. We want God to use us. We want God to anoint us. We want God to do all of these things. But is our effectual fervent prayers also being done on behalf of other people, even when it does not benefit us at all? Even when we will never be recognized for it, we will never get the pat on the back. Oh, good job praying for so-and-so. No, effectual fervent prayers of the righteous means that you're praying for others despite whether you ever get recognized for it. Because it's not about you. It's about God. So, with that being said, I want to take just a couple minutes, and I actually went way longer than I was intending to. It's already 747. Okay, let's all stand. Here's what I want to do. We're going to pray two specific, for two specific things. And then, did you, okay. I was going to say, hopefully, Brother Luke, you've been told already. I'm not going to throw you under the bus here. We're going to pray for two specific things, and I'm going to ask Brother Luke to come up and kind of close our pray, and the pastor will close us out. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray for two specific topics, if you will. And it's not that these are the only two that we should pray for, but I think that these two things here, if we can really, really focus and get these, it's going to help us. We've been doing lots of outreach, lots of evangelizing, all of those things, and I believe 100% that God will bring in the harvest, that he will fulfill the promises to this church. He's not a man that he should lie. But, but, I want to make sure that when those souls walk through those doors, that they reach an environment that is ready to receive them, to love them, and to help them grow. So here's the two things that we need. First, we need to pray for unity. Mark chapter 3, 24 and 25 just simply says this, and if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom can not stand. If this church allows itself for division to step in, this church cannot be all that God has called it to be. You and you and you and you and me, especially me, 
if we are not careful, we can be the seed of division. You don't have to stand behind the pulpit to be a leader. Leadership is influence. Are you using your influence for unity or for division? The second thing, pray for vision. Proverbs 29 tells us that the people perish because they have a lack of vision. But what is vision? I think of vision like this. I read the stories of Medal of Honor winners who go out and do these battles and, and sacrifice themselves. And, and I look at these stories and I'm like, how can anyone do that? Like the most selfless service, but they do it because there is a vision. There is a clear objective that they're trying to do in saving others. So we need to be united and we need to have the same vision. That vision is seeking all souls to have an, an encounter with God who can change them. Let's pray. Lord, I pray right now that you would help the church of Omaha and the Nebraska district and this country and the UPC, wherever it may be, that we would all be united, that we are all your children, that we are the body of Christ. Lord, that we would be unified in lifting one another up, oh God. That we are not in competition with each other, but that we are in a survival mode, seeking souls to bring to you, to help them avoid the fires of hell, oh God. Help us to be united in what we do, in our speech, in our actions, oh God. And I pray that we would also be united in our vision. That we, the vision is defined by your word. The vision is defined by what you spoke from the beginning of time, that our vision, O oh God, as it needs to be adjusted, help us to look upon your word, Lord, to make sure that we are following after you in all that we do. And Lord, I pray for grace and mercy. I pray that there will be moments in time in this church and others when we have mistakes and we have strife and we have troubles, O oh God. I pray that we would be willing to extend grace and mercy toward others and ourselves, that we would not give up, but that we would hear the knocking at the door and be willing to open every time you call, oh God. I pray that you would bring us together in one mind, in one accord, oh God, and that your kingdom cannot be stopped. If we would be unified in your spirit, the kingdom of God cannot be stopped. Jesus, we trust you to do all that you said you would do. And now as we move on, I'm going to have Brother Luke come up because I want to pray that the efforts we started won't be stopped.